What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 26. That's in the Old Testament after um, the Kings. So, you know, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Um, and typically we've been in, <clears throat> we've been in Exodus, right? Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> we just finished Genesis. We've been in Exodus. So Genesis, you know, God creates everything. Exodus, he delivers his people that he's chosen and they're in the wilderness. Um, So we're kind of fast-forwarding a pretty large amount to Chronicles. This will be the time of the kings. So basically, Exodus, they go out of the land, numbers, they do all the counting. Um, And then Joshua judges. They're the time of the judges. Then the people decide they want a king. So they have King Saul. Then they have King David. Then Solomon. And then um, the kingdom splits into two. And so the person that we're going to be looking at tonight is King Uzziah, and he's from the southern kingdom of Judah. So there's northern kingdom of Israel, Judah's the southern kingdom. So we are fast-forwarding a little bit, but it's one of my favorite passages in scripture, and uh, I hope it, you know, speaks to you guys tonight. So tonight, I wanted to answer kind of the question of what fits someone to be used by God? Like, what character traits is he looking for? Um, Why does God, you know, choose to use one person over another? Why, um, why do some people, you know, seem to have this gifting and calling that God really uses? You know, maybe they're not the smartest or they're not the brightest or, you know, whatever. What, what is it that fits someone for the service of God? And so we're going to look at King Uzziah tonight. That's, again, Second Chronicles chapter 26. Um, chapter 26 verses, it's really going to be the whole chapter. Uh, cross-reference to this would be 2 Kings 15. They both kind of tell the story in a different light, so you can write that down if you're a note-taker. You like those cross-references. Um, and we're going to see tonight the start of a king who does really well. He's a, he's a really young king when he takes the throne. The Verse 1 says he's only 16 years old when he was made king instead of his father, um, Amaziah. So his father starts well and doesn't end well. So God actually removes him and puts his son, 16 years old, into the throne. So no one here is 16. You know, that'd be like Scarlet in like five years, you know, becoming queen of like this country. So crazy, crazy thing. But we're going to start there and we're just going to see what happens. So bear with me. All right, verse one, it says, And all the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah, after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So note that um, he does what's right in the eyes of God, right? He's a young person. He doesn't know, you know, maybe how to run a country. I mean, he's seen his father do it, but then he sees his father removed. But the first thing that he says is, or one of the first things, is that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And the only reason he knows that is because he has, it says, according to all that his father had done. So his father trained him a little bit. But he also has this other gentleman, Zechariah, who's instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And that's kind of foreshadowing to the end of his life. Um, he doesn't seek the Lord his whole life. You know, we'll see what happens, why it happens. But just know that there's this man in his life who is hugely influential. And um, just as a quick application, a good friend can, you know, help you stay the course with the Lord. If you don't have those people in your life who are guiding you, rebuking you, telling you the truth, teaching you the fear of the Lord, you know, it'll, um, it'll not be good. And so specifically, he's instructed in this fear of the Lord. Now, that is not a, um, what's like a, like a scary fear. It's not like, ah, I'm scared, but it's reverential fear, just in case there's any confusion there. And so he set him, himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And that's what we're going to see. He reigns 52 years, which is actually the longest reign. Um, certainly, I believe, of all of the divided kingdom kings. So that's the longest period, the longest they have peace, the longest they have, um, you know, uh, prosperity. And so verse six, read with me. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. How does he do this? Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal against the Munites. Munites. There's a couple of these words I'm not going to get. So the Philistines, he makes progress with them. He goes into their territory. Now, these are the uh, like the perennial enemy of Israel. They're first mentioned in Genesis um, like through Abraham, you know, he's, he just references them. But we see that this young king advances where Samson had been, you know, defeated. Delilah was a Philistine. She seduced him, right? He lost his strength. Or even where King Saul had been terrified of um, Goliath. He was a Philistine. So we have this young kid, this young boy king, and he's moving into battle. And the only reason that the Bible gives is that he has a counselor who's pointing him to God, and it's God who's doing the work, right? It's God who does that. And as long as he seeks the Lord, God makes him prosper. Now it says God helps him against the Philistines. And the Ammonites, verse 8, this is another um, tribe, another uh, warring kingdom that attacks Israel constantly. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. And so the same way that King David fights, God fights for him. He's a skilled warrior. Ammonites are paying tribute to him. He's a skilled negotiator. He knows politics. He knows how, you know, to be a ruler at this young age, only because of the Lord. Verse 9, moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. 
So he's rebuilding Jerusalem. He's an architect. You know, he's socially minded over the kingdoms that he's ruling. He has this great wisdom, it seems. And he knows to reinforce his home, his home borders. You know, the best offense is good defense. That's right. And so he builds these towers, builds these kingdoms. And he built towers, read verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns. Those are wells. For he has large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. So not only is he a good warrior, not only is he a skilled negotiator, not only is he an architect or socially minded, but he protects his kingdom. He builds towers in the wilderness where all his farmers are, all the vine dressers. Typically, you'd build just your main city, and if you got attacked, you know, those people had to get to the city or else they had no hope, right? So he builds in the country so that these people have a better chance. If they get raided, they can go in this tower that he's built for them, you know, made of stone. And so he protects his kingdom. He's a compassionate man. You know, he provides for his flocks, for his people. He loves the soil. You know, you could say he's probably green friendly. He'd be, no, I'm not going to go with that. But he's environmentally friendly, right? He provides for people. He loves the soil. Verse 11, he has an army of soldiers. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the number of the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of his father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. So these are the heads, these are the officers, his 2,600 officers. Under their command was an army of 307,000, 307, 300, there's a really big number, 307,500 people who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all of the army, shields, spears, helmets, Coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. So he's a warrior himself. He's a skilled negotiator. He's an architect. He protects his kingdom. He's a compassionate man. He's um, pro-earth. He was a commander-in-chief and a great organizer. You know, he provides for his troops. He gives them all the things they need. He prepares his army with um, spears and helmets and bows. He's an equipper, right? And again, all of this starts from a 16-year-old boy who's king, but he has two things going for him. He has someone who guides him in the Lord and he actively is seeking the Lord, right? It says God makes him prosper all the dimes that he's sought the Lord. And finally, in verse 15, the last of his achievements, in Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Right, so he makes these machines of war. He's kind of an engineer. He, you know, puts out a battle plan for the city of Jerusalem, and it's until you know, till he was strong. Now, this man was arguably the best king since David or Solomon, you know, and the only reason he was marvelously helped. And if you kind of look at that with today, what like what a perfect leader he would be in a sense, you know, he'd protect the borders. He would, um, and I'm not trying to be political, so don't read into anything. He would protect the borders. He would, you know, provide for the people. He would know how to rule, know how to govern foreign policies, right? He would equip this, the army that he has. He would build up the capitals and the cities. You know, things would prosper. But, again, what a perfect leader. And 
I just think what a blessing, you know, when we're found in like the perfect will of God, when we're seeking him and we're walking with him, you know, and it just seems like no matter what we do, like he's going before and he's blessing. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, when you try and do something in your own strength or your own power, you just feel like you're treading water, you're not getting anywhere. Um, and the first um, tip, the first tool to seeking the Lord, I think, or to being used by the Lord is really, you know, you have to seek him first. You have to look after him. You have to focus on him. Or no matter what, you know, it's a work of the flesh. And um, the works of the flesh will fail where, you know, the spirit continues on. And so God uses this mind, this man mightily. And while he seeks the Lord, while he has the fear of the Lord, and while he is a teacher and a friend, you know, he's, he's being used. He's growing this kingdom. But now what happens to anyone when they get too strong or too big? You know, we're going to see what happens to him is pride. So verse 16, where does his pride go? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's something we all know. Proverbs 16, 18. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. And we're going to period right there. Um, unfaithful. He's treacherous, as, as other translations put it. He is not keeping faith with the Lord, his God. So it's like this. He's cheating on him in a sense. And what, what does he do? It says he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, this is really cool. And we're kind of going to explain just as if you, you know don't know anything if you do don't take offense i'm just going to start at the beginning kind of the altar of incense is in the tabernacle first then it's in the temple that solomon builds okay now the only people who can service on the altar are aaron and his sons like the priests of the priests not necessarily just the high priest but the family of priests that are specifically belonging to aaron okay so you have the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells on the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you've seen Indiana Jones, you have a rough image of what that looks like. And then in the next room, this is this altar of incense, and it's right by the veil. It's the closest thing to the Holy of Holies, okay? Again, only that, like the Aaron's family of priests can service it um, and offer incense to the Lord. And that's once in the morning, once at night. And then out of that room, you have... Like the, you go out of the holy place is what it's called. And you're into this, um, the court where the brazen altar is and where you can, this is the, where the common people, this is the furthest they can go to put their hand on the, either the altar, the horns of the altar, or to put their hand on the head of the, the bull while they're being sacrificed. So the common people can go there. So that's as far as this King Uzziah could go would be just the brazen altar, you know, and then you go out one more and you have the, you got one more, and you have um, the Hall of the Israelites, the outer court. This is the, where the women can go, the women's court. Then you have the court of the Gentiles, Solomon's porch. You know, Then you're on the mount. Then you're just in Jerusalem, and then you're kind of just a tourist. But So he goes into the holy place right, to burn incense on this altar of incense, which is a super, a super big no-no in um, Exodus 30, it describes um, it describes the altar of incense and its service. In verses 39 and 10, I'm just going to read it. It says, 
do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. So that's this altar of incense. Once a year, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he'd take some of that blood that atones for himself and the nation, put it on this altar. So it's, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's God, it's holy. And that's once a year. And then in Numbers 18, 1 through 7, it God outlines the prescriptions for what the priests are supposed to protect, how they're supposed to protect the altar, their priesthood, their rule, their responsibility. It says, and the Lord said to Aaron, you, your sons, and your family okay, are to bear the responsibility for offenses connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses connected with the priesthood. Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the covenant law. They are to be responsible to you and are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar. Otherwise, both they and you will die. So the Levites, the ones that helped the priests with all the sacrifices, they weren't even to go to this altar. Okay. They're to join you, verse, well, this is still Numbers, verse 4. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting, all the work at the tent, and no one else may come near where you are. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar, so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting, but only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. Okay, and it says the word again, because actually in number 16 is uh, the rebellion of Korah, which we might hopefully we'll look at at some point. Um, but it's this guy who rebels against Moses and Aaron th- saying, hey, God doesn't just want to speak to you. He wants us to lead as well. And they actually offer incense and God strikes them down. You know, the ground opens up and swallows them all like 250 men. And so this, that's in direct relation to where this passage is coming from. It's saying no one's supposed to go near it. Only these people, those people, they're the only one, only ones. Anyone else is to be put to death, right? And if you don't put them to death, it says the responsibility is on you guys. And they'll, you know, the implication being anyone who doesn't take action against this sin is going to be put to death. And so what this king Uzziah is doing is a huge no-no, right? He goes into the temple, or I can see him, you know, like walking up the temple. And people are like, oh, it's the king. You know, they're all happy and cheery. He walks through the court of the women, right? And they're all like, oh, you're the king. You're so good. You're great. You know, he walks up to the altar, and he doesn't have a sacrifice. So like, well, you know, maybe he just wants to talk to the high priest. We don't know. And then he walks past it. And, I mean, that's when the priests would, like, draw swords or, you know, follow him in. And that's what we see happen. He walks into this holy place, which he, by God's law, should be put to death. And so look what happens. Verse 16, he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went after him, went in after him. With 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, 
It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Right? So these priests, they withstand the king to their face, which is also kind of a huge no-no. You know, you can't tell the king what to do, what not to do. But as we should, they're answering to a higher law than just the laws of the land. You know, they're answering to God already, right? And so three, three kind of rebukes to these, the, to the king. And I love this. First, they withstood him, meaning they get in front of him like, hey, you can't do this. Stop. There's, you know, there's no way around that. That is, that's a rebuke. And also, it says they get in front of King Uzziah, but then they say to him, it is not for you, Uzziah. Notice they drop the title, right? They're not calling him King Uzziah in this point. They're, they're answering to a higher authority. You're not a god. You're not a king. You know, you're just, you're just a man at this point, standing before a holy God. And it is not for you to offer this incense. And I love that, right? The authority is higher. It's further. And in the same way, you know, us not in rebuking, you know, non-believers or people who don't know better, but in people who should know better, whether they're, you know, above you in worldly leadership or even, I would say, in the church. You know, if you go by scripture and you have a, a Bible-based rebuke, you know, I think we're commanded and exhorted to, hey, you know, what are you doing? You go to your brother. If he's in sin, right, you answer him, you offer that word, even if it's, you know, Pastor Matt or myself or Ray, if it's anyone, you know, and if you have biblical grounds, then you should be the one to rebuke, you know, and hopefully... It would be the leadership that would rebuke, but, you know, everyone's human. Either way, that was kind of a tangent. But so they rebuke him, right? They go into this um, this mode of, hey, it's not for you. This is not your role. Get out. And actually, it's um, it's not only is it wrong for anyone to do it, but it's super wrong for a king. Um, just if you know, um, like, Bible facts, Jesus is the only, like, prophet priest and king in the Bible and anyone else who comes close to that office is like it's a huge um, it's almost blasphemy which is definitely what it was so another thing I don't know why he does this I'm thinking about it like I just wonder you know maybe he thinks he's in this powerful place of well I've done so much for the nation or like surely God just wants to speak right to me or maybe I'm now I'm worthy to offer this you know this incense or I don't know I really have no idea um also I think it's interesting that it's Azariah the priest um it doesn't say that he's the high priest I'm not sure who was um but it's not Zechariah it's not you know the guy that was teaching him to seek the Lord so either he was silent on this issue or didn't know about it or he died you know but whatever the case Uzziah is not able to listen to him you know whether it's his own pride stopping him and so he's he doesn't necessarily have a leader and have a guide. Um, and just, again, a good example, a good practice in our lives, as we should always make sure we have someone that is, you know, speaking truth to us, that we listen to, that we know. I don't know if he has this guy um, anymore, but it's interesting he's not in the picture at this point, which could be why it says he, you know, seeks him all the days that the guy is alive, Zechariah. So they withstood him to his face, and he says, It will bring you no honor from the Lord your God. Okay, verse 19. Then Uzziah was angry. Period. Right? He's this king. He's in control. 
it says he's angry. And it, it's like there's this um, picture or this moment of this like sliver of mercy, right? He can turn and walk away and something else can happen, but we see that he doesn't. It says, now he had a censer in his hand to burn the incense. Um, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Um, and he has a censer in his hand, meaning he's committed, right? He's in the act. And as he's doing it, notice the priests don't have to defend, you know, their God or their, you know, he's not like Dagon, the fish God that falls over and they keep picking him back up. Like this is God and he brings leprosy upon, you know, one of the best kings of Israel because, or Judah, sorry, because he's stepping in the place of God. And so he doesn't take that moment of mercy. He's right at the flashing point of his anger and then he commits to it. And I think with all of us, and this kind of struck me myself, is I feel like there's that moment when you can choose, like right before you commit to your path of either like, I'm angry and I'm being wrong, or, well, I can be humble and admit that I'm wrong. Um, and not to put anyone on the spot, but especially when you're like married or when you have a wife, you know, or a husband or someone really close to you, when you get really angry with them, there's like that moment, right? And there's that little voice that's like, hey, you can stop now and you know, you can ask for forgiveness. You know you're not doing the godly thing. You know you're not doing the right thing. Or you can commit. And so, you know, this guy commits. But hopefully in our lives we can, okay, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, his, his pride had blinded him to the truth of what he was doing, of the, the gravity of the mistake he was making. And so it says that... He has leprosy, breaks out on his forehead, right? Pride swells the brain, it's in his head, cool picture. In the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Now, leprosy is the skin disease that, you know, they have to cover their lip and yell unclean. He can't be in the temple anywhere because he's unclean. He can't hardly be in the city. If he is, he's like tucked away in a corner. And so the priests actually pick him up, rush him out. And he's rushing to get out because he knows you know, it, the, the cloud breaks, so to speak, and the light's there, and he recognizes what he's done. It says, a leprosy broke out in the presence, and Azariah, verse 20, Azariah, the chief priest, oh, he is the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in the forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah, this is the consequence of his sin, just one sin, one action. He has 52 years of prosperity and reigning from a young boy um, and one you know one day whatever woke him up in his mind it's irreversible it says and king Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper he lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the lord and Jotham his son was over the king's household governing the people of the land now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, and Uzziah slept with his fathers. They buried him with his, leper, or with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, he is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. Um, that's kind of just the format of the books of the kings and the chronicles. They chronicle the life, the achievements, and then, you know, where they're buried. 
He's not even buried actually with his fathers. He's buried in just the field that belonged to the kings because he's a leper. So he, it's this picture of he's missed out on everything that his kingship could offer him. You know, the peace in his old age, comfort. You know, he doesn't have that anymore. He's a leper. And even just the honor of being buried by family, he, you know, he'd forfeited from this one act. Um, and in looking at this, in looking at what is the, you know, the quality trait of the people that God uses as kind of the background, I think it's, you know, humility and recognizing that pride can be a disqualifier because your pride, not by itself, but it leads to death because it blinds us, you know, to the truths of God's word, to the things that we shouldn't be doing. Um, You know, when people change, people, you know, grow out of maybe the love they had for God or the trust they had in his word, the dependence even. Um, But just the implication and the admonition of this passage is, again, find someone who will keep you honest, keep you close to the Lord. And you yourself have to fix your eyes on him to seek the Lord, right? And it says, the rest of the Acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos wrote, and that's actually where we're going to go because we have time, and I wasn't sure if we would. We're going to go to Isaiah 6, now that the uh, intro is over. Let's buckle down the... uh, the next hour and a half could get a little dry. Just kidding, that's a, that's a joke. Um, now, we're not reading specifically about the acts of Uzziah anymore. He's kind of a contrast to now we're going to see a different servant of the Lord. You know, we've seen a king who's grown up in this place of privilege and power, and we've seen his pride be his downfall. And now we're going to see Isaiah chapter 6. It's actually a very common commonly known passage. Um, It's the calling of Isaiah. As a side note, commentators are kind of split if this is his original calling and it's just placed out of order because it's chapter six, typically it'd be chapter one, or if it's kind of a recommissioning um, of his ministry, it, you know, you can pick your sides. It doesn't apply tonight. But so I love this because it ties so well with the King Uzziah. Chapter 6, Isaiah, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Right. It, I, I always get chills when I read it because it's like, especially when you understand what just happened. Now this prophet who's seen this man so proud, so arrogant, you know, deny the word of the Lord. He is, he has this as the background. And I think that's why it's pictured is because it just stands so far in contrast with who is Isaiah and what he recognizes. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seating upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's very different. This king goes, you know, maybe the most worthy man apart from the priests in Israel goes only to the veil, right? He only goes to the altar. Now there's this guy, Isaiah, and he goes past the veil, right? And it says, I saw the Lord. Um, Now John would say that it's um, John chapter 12, verse 41, if you want to write it down, that he sees the glory of Jesus, right? Like a Christophany. Again, commentators have a a million views. Well, maybe he saw it in his sleep and it's just a vision. We don't really know. It is probably a vision, but I'm just saying that we don't know if it's just the glory of the Lord, like Moses saw that passed by behind the rock. If it's, you know, Jesus, either way, he says, I saw the Lord, right? So he's past the veil. He's further than Uzziah ever was. And he says, he's sitting on a throne, right? 
where Uzziah was usurped from his throne. This is the king who's still on his throne. He's high and he's lifted up, right, above everything else, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, That just speaks of the amount of majesty and glory that he has, right? It fills the temple that he doesn't have to move around because you couldn't move if you had like a 60-foot train. But it just speaks of his power, his majesty. And it says, verse 2, Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. And with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, the, the seraphim, um, the word specifically is like burning ones. And to my knowledge, this is the only place in, in the Bible that they're actually mentioned, um, but it's just a type of angelic being. They have six wings. They cover their face, implying that they're not worthy to look upon the Lord. They cover their feet, you know, kind of the unclean parts of them. And with two, they fly. That They're continually flying in service to God. So they're always ready. But it's interesting. So Isaiah sees the Lord, right? He's this human, this sinful guy, because all men are sinful. And these angels won't even look at, you know, what Isaiah is seeing. Also interesting, Isaiah doesn't describe what the Lord looks like. You know, he just describes the seraphim, which I think you could uh, kind of harken back to when Paul, you know, he says he went up to the third heaven and he couldn't describe what he saw. I think it's the same picture. It's just too beautiful, too glorious for words. But so he sees these seraphim, six wings, they're crying to one another, holy, 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 you know, three times, not for repetition, but for emphasis, added emphasis that he is holy, holy, you know, holy beyond, beyond, beyond. And the whole earth is full of his glory, which I didn't plan that song. I just thought it was cool that it happened on the same night. Um, And the verse four, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, this is the, the, the like the temple or, or the throne room is shaking. And it's just from the seraphim. It's not even from the Lord speaking, but a lesser being. I like also that the house is filled with smoke. I don't know if the intention is to hearken back to Uzziah trying to offer this incense, you know, but it's altar, it's smoke. Or if it's um, like the Shekinah glory, which the children of Israel saw in the desert. But it's interesting. You know, the house is filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response is, wow, I'm so blessed. I have seen the Lord. How great is this? Right? That's not what he says. Because he recognizes, he sees the holiness, the perfection of all ages, and he recognizes who he is, right? He sees his own unworthiness, his own uncleanness. And he says, woe is me, right? For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He recognizes, well, I'm a sinner. I'm about to die because, you know, I've seen the Lord. I've seen, you know, perfection. And Uzziah, earlier this year, right, he didn't even see the Lord. He was just in the wrong place, knowing better, and he died. He was struck to death. Um, So he recognizes woe is me, like I'm undone. And he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips, meaning even the people he hangs out with or Israel themselves, they're all sinners. There's no one righteous, right? They're all, um, 
Yeah, they're all sinners. There's a verse in Isaiah that I was thinking of, but I can't remember. Um, but he recognizes, my eyes have seen the king, right? And it's like capital, capital, capital king. Not King Uzziah, who was off his throne. Not his son, Jotham. Not his dad, Amaziah. Not any northern king. I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord over all. Okay. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. Well, the closest altar is the altar of incense, fun fact. Um, So he takes this burning coal with uh, tongs, which I guess it's because it's, I, I really don't know. I don't know why he has tongs. He's an angel. His name literally means burning ones. So it's not for fire safety that he's using tongs, but probably because it's holy, you know, and he's purifying something else, someone else. And says, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, right? He's a man of unclean lips. So the angel touches his lips with the coal from the altar. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay. So Isaiah has been prepared now for the service of the Lord. He's been cleansed. And that's, um, that's part of the battle. I mean, who does God use in service for him? Someone that is cleansed, you know, someone that is purified. Your ministry or your calling or your family that you're praying for or whoever, you will have so much more impact, you know, when you are cleansed, when you are walking covered by the blood of Jesus, but also walking, you know, side by side with him. Like the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Um, And to avoid that is to cripple yourself in whatever um, work of the Lord you want to see done. So the, the angel touches his lips, right? His guilt is taken away, his sin atoned for. And then he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Um, and he has a message. We're not going to read the message because it's, um, yeah, we're not going to read the message. But Isaiah doesn't even know what he's signing up for, right? God says, who, who am I going to send? He's not commanding. He's not saying, you have to go, Isaiah. You've seen me. That's what you owe me. He's just saying, who am I going to send? And Isaiah, I think, recognizes, well, I've been cleansed. I've just been shown, you know, mercy. I've had my life literally given to me because I should have died. And so when the Lord says, who am I going to send? He just says, hey, I'm right, I'm right here. You know, send me. And then the Lord says, you know, go. That's, that's who God is looking for. He's looking for, you know, someone who's humble, someone who recognizes they don't have maybe all the answers or all the skills of a mighty king or you know, someone who knows their way around farming or soil like Uzziah. But God's looking for someone who is humble and purified, you know, which really should qualify everyone in this room, you know, because we don't have, you know, maybe the greatest talents or skills or knowledge, you know, and we've all been, you know, saved ultimately, hopefully, by the blood of Jesus. And, you know, once you meet those two requirements, God will use you. You know, he's looking for people um, to use. And I wanted to close maybe a bit early, I guess. I I really don't know. Um, But looking in just Hebrews um, chapter 9, I think it's a really cool verse to close with. And it talks about Jesus, our high priest, being greater than 
you know, Moses and the angels. And sorry if we're doing a lot of flipping. I know we typically don't. But so um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Jesus has entered into the holy place, right? Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his own sacrifice. And um, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right? If the priestly sacrifice of the Old Testament would purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right? The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice said here is to purify our conscience from the dead works, but to serve the living God, right? just like Isaiah. And jumping ahead again, chapter 10, one page over, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it's brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love that. Since we have confidence, we can enter the holy place, right? Where Uzziah stopped and was struck down, where Isaiah saw and should have been struck down, we now have confidence, right, to enter in. And, you know, that's how God will want to use us. That's how we can use us. And so I hope that encourages you. Sorry if it's a little rambling or short. But does anyone have any questions? Maybe Matt or I could answer. Or any thoughts, you know, on, on tonight?